We thank you, Jesus, for your power that is made secured by your resurrection, and we thank you that that power, that same power that raised you to life again is granted to us so that we can walk with you. And so we ask now as we turn our attention to your word that you would be with us. We need you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Likely, the most asked question or inquiry I get as a pastor from Christians is about discerning God's will. There's likely no other question I get asked more than how do I know what God wants me to do? How do I know where he'd have me to go? How do I know what he'd like me to do? Now, I recognize as I say this that at times as we think about God's will that there are some things that we understand from God's revelation in Scripture. So God's granted us the word of God, and in granting us the word of God, God uses his word to direct us. It's his words, it's authoritative, it's inerrant, it's infallible, and God will use his word to direct us. And that's just in the way we generally live. But then there are times when we're looking for specifics. How do I specifically know X, right, and what that looks like? So example could be, how do I know what school I should go to? How do I know who I should marry? How do I know where I should live? And sometimes people very specifically are agonizing over how they understand God's will in those areas, how they know where they should go, how they know what they should do. If you've been a Christian any length of time, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You've got a decision in front of you, whatever that decision would be, and you're agonizing over, like, should I marry this person? You're agonizing over, where should I go to school? You're agonizing over, what do I do next? And you're looking for some sign from God. And often as we talk about discerning God's will, we talk about four different things that we do right? We, we pray. We, we pray. We read scripture. And so we look at the scriptures, say, how was this aligned? We want to hear from the spirit uh, in terms of what the spirit, how the spirit is guiding and directing us. And then we want to hear from other believers. We want to collect wisdom, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love the peace one in. Some people will say you, you're looking for peace. I'm going to love the peace one in with, with relying on the Holy Spirit, what that looks like. And so we do that at times. Now, what do you do that for? Let me, let me just throw out some stuff, right? This morning, you woke up. Many of you had breakfast. Before you had breakfast, did you look at your cupboard and say, oh, sovereign I am, who has directed all things in the universe from before the foundation of time? I'm asking you now, is it Pop-Tarts or cornflakes? Lord, reveal your will. And did you just wait? Most of us don't do that, and we actually don't do that very often in our daily routine. And yet, if you're like me, you make dozens, maybe hundreds, of decisions every day. Don't you? What route you'll take to work, what emails you respond to, how you phrase something, how you word something, how you interact with something. Don't you make decisions constantly? How you respond to your kids when they're misbehaving, how you celebrate them when they are doing well. And yet somehow in life, we elevate certain decisions to this moment of, of, wow, we've really got to seek God's will on this. Why? Is that anywhere in the Bible? Is it anywhere in the Bible? Is there a list of which decisions you submit to God in that way and which decisions you don't submit to God in this way? Why, why who you'll marry? Is that anywhere in the Bible? About, no. Where you'll live? No. So why do we do it? Why does it happen? 
Now, there's advice in the Bible about who you'll marry, right? It talks about what a godly woman is like. It talks about what a godly man is like. It talks about how Christians should not date non-Christians, right? How Christians marry Christians and what that looks like because the most important thing in your life is God. And so you want to make sure the person you're marrying has that as an alignment and how critical that is. There's, there's things in Scripture that is revealed to us, but nowhere in the Bible does it tell you who you'll specifically marry, nor does God say that you're to cry out to him for their name and he'll reveal it to you. But what happens is occasionally we end up in a place. So I'm young, right? I'm, I'm, I'm 18 years old at the time. And I'm on Center Island. And it's my third day at Bible college. And I'm pretty excited. And I was going to go to Queens. I had scholarships to go there. And some friends and people said, you should go to Bible college for a year. And so there I am at Center Island. And a whole bunch of people all around are talking about very specific ways that the Lord has led them to this thing that was called OBC, Ontario Bible College then. And I'm like, I got no story like this. I picked the school. I got in because anybody could get in. Sorry, I don't mean that in a bad way. They're like, do you have money? I'm like, yeah, okay. Um, no, they asked if I knew the Lord. They asked a few other things, right? But grades didn't seem to matter. Outside of grades, if, if you love Jesus, you were saved, and you had money, you could come. Um, and so, and so, and so there's some dramatic stories going around this massive campfire of people who were very clearly led by God with no doubt in my mind to come to Tyndale. Oh, we see that. And people from overseas, people from other parts of the world. That's the same with some people's marriages. Sometimes people will talk about the dramatic story of God leading two people together and what that looks like. Now, don't misunderstand me. We're... I'm exceptionally reformed. We are a reformed church. So we believe fully in the sovereignty of God. I'm not saying God isn't sovereign. Not in any way. God is completely sovereign. I'm saying we often confuse how we discern his will. We often don't understand how we discern the will of God, specifically outside of the revealed will in Scripture. And how we understand his will when it comes to one person talking to another and what that looks like and so we come to one of the most complicated passages in all of acts isn't that nice acts 21 if you have your bibles turn to acts 21 it'll be on the screen because i would suggest that the reason most of us are incredibly frustrated with discerning what god has for us next is because we haven't learned to listen to the holy spirit it's as simple as that we haven't learned to listen to the Holy Spirit, who is who? Our counselor and our guide. Is that not true? Listen to the word of God. Verse 1. After we, that's important, right? You see this multiple times through Acts. The we tells us Luke is traveling with them, right? Luke who's written more words in the New Testament than any other author of the New Testament. We often miss that when you take together both the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts. Luke has written prolifically, there's a we here. Because at this point in time in Acts, Luke is traveling with them again. So you saw it earlier, Luke was traveling with them. Then there's a departure. Not, not a bad departure, just he's not. And now he's traveling with them again. So they're just leaving the elders at Ephesus. So Luke obviously is there in Ephesus with them. You see that in chapter 20. I looked at that last week. After we had torn ourselves away from them, that's the elders who are crying and praying with Paul and them, we put out to sea. So Luke is still with them and sailed straight to Kos. 
The next day, we went on to Rhodes, and from there to Patra, we found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia and went on board to set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, note that, we urged Paul, they urged Paul, sorry, not we, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and accompanied and continued our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and, we, and they returned home. So here you have Paul, Luke, and other companions traveling. And Paul is convinced he needs to go to Jerusalem. You now here have the group entire, right, where they stay seven days. We don't know when they offered this word to, to Paul. doesn't say. Was it day one? Was it day two? Was it day five? Don't know. It just says that through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So it stuck between they were there seven days in verse 5 when it was time to leave. Why? Well, what, one of the questions is why did Paul stay there so long? Probably the answer to that is they were able to, to get a direct route to Tyre. That's unusual. Normally they would travel on the coast. It would take several days. But this direct route granted them time. And so in granting them time, Paul decides to stay longer. And so they stay there longer, encouraging, teaching, praying with those that are there in, in Tyre. And as, as they're there doing so, when they leave, like in Ephesus, there's emotional. They're attached to each other. They love each other. They, they care for each other. They're growing in their faith together. I mean, I talked about that last week, how we should be that intimately connected with other people. We should be that connected to other believers. And they leave. But it is interesting, I'll come back to this later, that through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. What does that mean? And why does Paul go anyway? You should be thinking about that when we go through the text. Verse 7. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed in uh, Polymus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed there for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed in, at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So this is Philip, who's one of the seven, one of the deacons. This is the Philip who God used as one of the deacons of the early church earlier in Acts in great revival in Samaria, right? You can go back and read that. We preached on that. And then to reach the Ethiopian eunuch. So Philip was the one who reached the first missionary into Africa, the Ethiopian eunuch. And we know that that Philip is this Philip and not the apostle Philip, right? Because there's two Philips. Philip the apostle, Philip the deacon. And we know in earlier Acts it's Philip the deacon, not because it says so specifically, but because it talks about in the area of Samaria how the apostles had to come to authenticate that this was the work of the Spirit and pray the Spirit's anointing on those that were coming to believe. If it was Philip the apostle, they wouldn't have had to send for other apostles. Does that make sense? So it's Philip the deacon that God is using there. It's Philip the deacon that we have uh, using, God's using in the life of the Ethiopian eunuch. At that time, it says the Spirit just took him away. He ends up in Caesarea, it tells us. Now he's been here for a long time because he's got four kids. So we're likely 22 or three years later. Remember, Paul's now on his third missionary journey. So over two decades have passed, right? We've just gone through a few chapters. We're talking 25 years later. And Philip, married, has four kids, and they're all, they all have the gift of prophecy. 
they're all able to prophesy. And this is one of the things I struggle with. People talk about how this was just an apostolic gift. It wasn't. I mean, Agabus is about to prophesy next, and he wasn't an apostle either. So four of these women, daughters of Philip, are prophesying, which speaks to, out of the prophecies earlier in the chapter, on the day, earlier in the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, that the Spirit of God is going to fall on your children, on your sons and your daughters, that this is a gift because God does not differentiate in his giftedness for both men and women. Now, that is complicated for some people who believe that preaching is prophesying. It's not. Because if you're in a complementarian place where you believe that Scripture teaches that men are given, right, to the teaching of the church, then what do you do with the fact that women are gifted with prophecy if you think that prophesying is teaching? Prophesying is not teaching. It's very different. That's why you see in 1 Corinthians 11, it gives instructions for how women are to prophesy and what that looks like. It's in the context of the local church. And so these four women are gifted in the gift of prophecy because men and women are given the gift of the prophetic, or are given the prophetic gift. I'm going to move on. Uh, Verse 10. After we had been there a number of days, so again, we don't know how long they stayed. Is this a week, two weeks, a month? Is Is it three days? Doesn't say. A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, we've already met Agabus. He was back in chapter 11. He's the one who prophesied that a famine would come onto Jerusalem and the churches decided that they from around the world would take up a collection for the Jerusalem church. So I believe one of the things Paul's doing when he's going to Jerusalem is he's bringing that collection with him. He's now bringing the collection to Jerusalem with him. I don't think that necessarily happened, though it could have, at, at the, council, uh, the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. I think here is where we see that gift coming. Or, possibly... He brought a gift from some of the churches he'd been traveling with up till Acts 15, and now he's bringing a gift from the churches he's been traveling with now to help those in Jerusalem that are going through the famine. And so Agabus, who prophesied about the famine with another group of prophets in Acts 11, comes down. Coming over to us, he takes Paul's belt. This would have been a long belt, not a short belt like mine. It's gotten longer over the years, but not long enough to do this. It would have been like a rope-like belt. I'll just leave that. He took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, you need to watch that. We're going to come to this in a bit. Because in the text, it's the Romans who bind him, not the Jewish leaders. What do you do with this? I want to explain. This is why this, this chapter is full of controversy, full, full of things you've got to think through that I'm going to get to at the end and hopefully help you sort it out. Um, now note Paul's response, verse, chapter, verse 12. When we heard this, when, when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So even Luke is pleading with Paul now not to go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you there, Paul. Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. So entire, through the Spirit, Paul's told not to go to Jerusalem. Agabus now offers a prophetic word that Paul's going to be tied up, bound, and, and hand over to the Gentiles in Jerusalem. The people now are pleading with him not to go, and Paul says, I'm to go. What do you do with all that? Let me keep going. I, this, is, this is my goal today, is to make you think. I'm hoping this is happening. 
And now, this is Acts 20. If I flip back a couple of ch a chapter, this is what Paul says. And now, compelled by the Spirit, Paul says, I am going to Jerusalem, not only uh, not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit wants, uh, uh, warns me, sorry, that prison and hardships are facing me. So Paul says, I don't know if I'll live or die. And he's been in prison multiple times by now. But he says, I, I know that prison and hardships are facing him. And what does he say? I am going to Jerusalem because I'm compelled by the Holy Spirit. Why is Paul going to Jerusalem? Why is why does he believe the Spirit's compelling him to do so? Well, he wants to make his way to Rome. Why Rome? He's now preached the gospel in a huge part of the world. And literally back then, because Rome was in charge of the world, all roads lead to Rome. From Rome, you get to the entire world. From Rome, you can infect the entire world. T today, if you want to infect the entire world, if you want to spread your news the entire world, how do you do it? Well, maybe through social media that can work. But, but our world powers today, we are more influenced not by nations as much as cities, some of the largest cities in the world, right? Whatever happens in London or New York or Beijing influences the entire world. Never before in human history, never, ever before in human history, did what happened in a city have such an influence on the planet. But that's true of companies too, right? Amazon. Apple. But in those days, it was Rome, right? And Paul knew if I could get to Rome, and if I could be before the emperor, if I could get to Rome and have an audience there, Paul wants to testify in Rome. And his way to Rome, he believes, is through Jerusalem. He believes that's what God's spirit has told him, compelling him to go to Jerusalem. If I can get to Rome, then the whole world can hear the gospel in a way that I can't just do it from place to place. That's the last whole book of part of Acts. I mean, you have to ask yourself, eight chapters of Acts is spent on Paul's trials. Why? You hear his testimony two more times. Why? I mean, this is larger than the book of Colossians, the book of Philippians, the book of Thessalonians. This is larger than most of the other books Paul writes. And, and Paul didn't pen this, Luke did. But why does Luke choose to spend so many chapters so much of the word of God on this portion of scripture. It's because it's critical, Luke believes, as guided by the Holy Spirit, to our faith. So often we just skip through the end of Acts because we're like, wow, trial after trial after trial after trial. But this says how critical it is to us when you see the length of time Luke dedicates to it as directed by God's spirit. Paul one of the people, of course, that was most opposed to the gospel. One of the people that wanted to end the gospel. One of the people that was having the Jews killed. Meets the living Christ. Is transformed by him. Declares to everyone he is the Messiah. Begins to tell everybody their need of a savior. Him first. Him who thought he had little of any sin. Right? He knew he had sin. But not in the way he understood it until God saved him. Um, he would have offered his sacrifices at the temple. Paul would have had whole books of the Bible memorized before, before the Lord saved him. He'd have been at the temple faithfully, offering sacrifices, teaching. I mean, Paul was teaching scripture to people, right? The whole of the Old Testament. He would have known it inside out. More than any of us here would know the Old Testament. With whole books of the Bible memorized. 
and God saves him and says, you're persecuting me. And he will stop at nothing to declare to everyone he's met the risen Lord. I've been saved. So he wants to get to Jerusalem to get to Rome. So the question this morning is, through the Spirit, these people are giving a word to Paul to say, don't go to Jerusalem. That's complicated because Paul's still going. Agabus says to Paul what's going to happen to him. They plead with him not to go. He's still going. And you have four daughters of Philip who are prophesying. So what is this? What is prophesying? Look at the Sam Storm's definition. I appreciate, I appreciate this. I will define prophecy more specifically as the speaking forth, this is one of his blogs, in merely human words, something the Holy Spirit has sovereignly and often spontaneously revealed to a believer. Prophecy, therefore, is not based on a hunch or a supposition, an inference, an educated guess, or even uh, on sanctified wisdom. Prophecy is not based on personal insight, intuition, or illumination. Prophecy is the human report of a divine revelation. Now, he's very clear. It's always subject to Scripture because it's not equal to Scripture. This is not... This is not new scripture. This is not God's word to us in the sense of inspired and inerrant. The prophets are fallible. That's why you're to test them, it says in Thessalonians. This is another helpful word. Prophecy is revelation from God's spirit, which is aligned with scripture, offering a specific application to an individual or group that isn't found in scripture. It's not found in scripture. So prophecy is always subject to scripture. Like I've said this number of times here, the spirit of God will never lead you where the word of God cannot take you. God will not in any way contradict himself. God's spirit will never lead you. So when people tell me, you know, they're not honoring the Lord with their wealth or they're not doing this or they're not doing that, whatever it is, I'm like, I'm like have you prayed about this? Have you thought, I mean, well, no. Like the spirit of God will never lead you any time to a place where the word of God will not take you. 1 Thessalonians 5, I'll get to this at the end, talks about how we're to test what God has said. Oh, sorry, what the Spirit has said, what a, what a prophet has said, not what God has said. Test what a, what a prophet has said to see if it's what God has actually said. Well, verse 15. So after this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of a mason where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went up to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported uh, in detail what God had done among the Gentiles in his ministry. So they're on their way to Jerusalem. Note this, even though the disciples, through the Spirit, had urged Paul not to go. So is Paul sinning here? Is he grieving the Spirit? I mean, he's not the incarnate Son of God. That's one of the theories. Paul is grieving the Spirit here. Through the Spirit, they said not to go, and he went. Is that what happened? So he meets James. James here is the half-brother of Jesus, right? There's two James that are apostles. One has already been executed. The other likely isn't the leader of the church. It's likely the half-brother of Jesus. That's the leader of the church. They've met four times in the accounts of Galatians and in, in Acts, maybe more. But as we know, as recorded for us, James and Paul have now met four times. It's the fourth time. And as they gather together, Paul brings his greetings and says all that God's doing in the Gentiles. And when they heard this, note this, verse 20, they praise God. So there's tension here between Paul and the church. You're going to find this out in a minute. Between Paul and the Jewish believers. 
But even though that's true, they praise God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brothers, how many of the Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. Hey, Paul, we're so thankful that the Gentiles have come to faith in Christ, but look at all the Jews that have come to faith in Christ, and remember, the Jews are zealous for the law. The Jews are still having their kids, their boys circumcised, even though they don't have to. They're still following the law. Now, you need to remember, at this point in time, most of our Bible isn't written. So all they have is the Old Testament, possibly by this time one of the Gospels. And as I would argue earlier in, through the series of Acts, likely James has been written at this time, and likely Galatians has been written at the time. But likely, that's all we got. They have James that would have been circulating just kind of slowly, right? Galatians maybe at this time, and maybe Mark, right? It depends on when you date some of the Gospels. So the Bible is just being written at this time. So all they have is what? The Old Testament. And so they're relying on it. And so they're reading it. And so these Jews that are coming to faith in Christ are understanding that Christ is the great sacrifice, but they're reading through the Levitical law saying, what should and shouldn't we do here? And they're zealous for the law. So Paul, we're excited about the Gentile thing. We celebrate that and praise God with you, but we're zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? We will certainly hear, they will certainly hear that you've come. So what do we tell you? Uh, so do what we, sorry, he said, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who've made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, pay their expenses, so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you, but that you yourself are practicing and living in obedience to the law. So they're saying there's friction, Paul. There's this tension. And because of this tension, we're asking that you pay for these other four men to have their head shaved, you have your head shaved, and you be purified according to the law. Because the Jewish people are struggling with the fact that the Gentiles aren't needing to follow the way the Jews believe they do. Because they don't have Hebrews yet. They don't have Romans yet. They're not written to explain how we understand the law. To explain how we understand the Old Testament. And remember, that's why the Jerusalem Council met. I just spent two weeks on that in Acts 15. So verse 25, as for the Gentile believers, we've written to them about our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols. Right? Now that changes in Corinthians. So Corinthians isn't written yet. Where Paul says, we know that there's no idols at all. So it alters that. You have to go back and listen to those two sermons. I'm not going to get into this right now. From blood, so don't eat meat that's still got lifeblood in it. Uh, from the meat of strangled animals, because again, lifeblood is in it. And from sexual immorality. Read Leviticus on sexual immorality. It says, that's all we got, because they didn't have Matthew yet. They didn't have the Beatitudes yet. They'd been spoken, because Jesus dead and resurrected, but they haven't spoken yet. So what happens here? Paul recognizes that this is an area of disputable matter. It's not an area of sound doctrine. It's an area of dispute. Not an area of unsound doctrine, not an area of heresy. Those are the four categories I gave back in Acts 15 that I think we should use to categorize Scripture. Sound doctrine, disputable matter. They're the four categories we find listed in Scripture itself. Unsound doctrine, and heresy or blasphemy. So, if this is a disputable matter, Paul's like, yeah, I'll get my head shaved. I mean, I like my hair, but it's fine. And he's fine doing it. Why? Well, we find this in 
uh, verse 25. The next day, Paul took the men, purified himself along with them. He went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. This is reminiscent of 1 Corinthians 9, right? Though I am free and I belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. He goes on from there, right? To talk about he'll become all things to all men to by some means win some. So Paul says, yeah, this is the disputable matter. I'll get my head shaved. Now note, when they talk about the four things of the decisions, they don't mention that they need to be circumcised. But they are saying to Paul, there's a lot of controversy around when you're now saying that the kids don't need to be circumcised because it's no longer a sign. So they're not telling him he can't teach that. Did you catch that? They're not telling him to not teach that because they know they don't need to be circumcised anymore. But they are saying, these are the four things we agreed on, and can you go through this purification right so everybody know you're still with us? James said it would save me a lot of headaches. If everybody could know that this is areas of dispute and you're still with us. And Paul's like, sure, shave my head. I'll pay for the rights. I'll do this. Do you see how, how human Luke makes the first church in Acts look? Just a group of people like us, saved by God, gathering together, figuring it out. I mean, we're thankful we have the whole canon of Scripture. Is that not great news? They didn't. We've got the whole book. They had the apostles live. That would have been pretty cool too, by the way. Right? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know which I'd prefer, but I do like my laptop. So anyway, probably today. But, but there they are trying to figure it out. Because Paul says, I don't want any hindrance in sharing the gospel with Jew or Gentile. So shave my head and I'll do this. I, I've said this before when I preached on disputable matters. I've done several series on this over the years. The most free person as a Christian isn't the person who exercises their freedom. The most free person is the person who realizes they can give up their freedom for the sake of another. That is the most free person. Right? That's what scripture teaches. Paul says, if eating meat causes my brother to sin, I will never eat meat again. Could you say that? I'll become a vegetarian if it causes a brother or sister to stumble. Verse 27, I got to move here. When the seven days were nearly over, some of the Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd. They seized him. They shouted, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place, the temple. Because he's declaring Jesus is the temple now. Read Hebrew. Well, he doesn't write Hebrews, but read Hebrews. It's clear in there. And besides, he, he has brought Greeks into the temple. He's brought Greeks here and defiled this holy place. They'd previously seen Timotheus and, and uh, sorry, the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assume that Paul brought him into the temple. So the whole city's aroused. The people come running from all directions, seizing Paul. They drag him from the temple and immediately the gates are shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops. This is very interesting. I mean, who defends Jesus? I mean, he gives them over, but the Romans. I, I don't see anything wrong with it. Who defends Paul? The Romans. It's fascinating. Watch it through the book of Acts, right? I mean, they still imprison him, but they do follow their own laws. You saw that earlier in Acts. You're seeing it now. So they come and they seize him uh, because of the disturbance. Uh, the commander of the Roman troops at the whole city of Jerusalem is in an uproar. Verse 32, 
he at once took some of the officers and soldiers, ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him, ordered him to be bound with two chains. And they asked him who he was and what he had done. And some of the crowd shouted one thing, some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken to the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. So here's the dilemma, some would say. Through the Spirit, they told entire Paul not to go to Jerusalem, and he went. Was he grieving the Spirit? Was he disobeying? Agabus says, the Jews will bind you and hand you over to the Gentiles. Scripture, Luke records, it's not the Jews who bind him, it's the Romans. Was Agabus right or wrong? You've got four daughters that are prophesying. Agabus, who's considered a godly man who's prophesying. What do you do with all this? Well, come back next week. I have run out of time, but I'm, I'm going to keep going for a minute, okay? And then I'll, I'll continue it next week. So, there's multiple options here. Let me offer some solutions, right? Uh, one, one is this. When they're urging Paul not to go to Jerusalem and Tyre, they're not giving a timeline. It is through the Spirit. Luke records that very clearly for us. And so, is it that he's not to go to, Tyre, uh, to Jerusalem immediately, ever? It would seem it's, it's more of an immediate thing. And Paul is still compelled by the Spirit, as we looked at in Galatians 20, in, sorry, Acts 20, to go to Jerusalem. And so I believe he's trying to wrestle through those things, which is why he takes longer to get to Jerusalem. He spends seven days there. He spends a couple of, He could have gotten to Jerusalem a lot sooner. Multiple days in another place. Caesarea, time. Like, he spends time in these various places teaching on his way to Jerusalem. So I believe he both listens to what they're saying as he's going... And he obeys what the Spirit has told him. I believe it's a both and, not neither or. So I believe God has used them to speak into his life, right? When it comes to Agabus, right? So how did God speak to Agabus? I don't know. Did he see a vision of Paul being bound? Because often what happens when it comes to prophecy is, is God might grant you a dream or a vision in, in terms of the revelation that he grants you. And where we often mess it up is in our interpretation of it and application of it. So did he misapply it? Or is it possible that even though Luke only mentions the Romans binding him by chains, that when they seized him and they're beating Paul, that the Jews had actually bound him? And so the Jews had bound him, um, and then the Romans show up, and they, they free him from the crowd. They loose those binds. Maybe they were ropes. I don't know. And then they bind him with chains. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I actually think likely Agabus was accurate in his prophetic word as well. Right? And, and in essence, though I know he says the Jews hand him over uh, to the Gentiles, I'm not going to get, like, that is what happens. I'm okay that it's through the means of their riot that the Gentiles, the Romans, come and get him. And then the people there that are persuading Paul not to come, it doesn't say at all it's a prophetic word. So people, I think, are reading into that. So I think what's happening is Paul's been told not to go through the Spirit, so he delays getting to Jerusalem, because he's been told by the Spirit to get there. He gets there, but in a delayed way, for whatever reason that God wants. The riot breaks out from the Jews after he's connected with the church. This riot with the Jews breaks out. The Romans show up. Likely, I think he's bound by the Jews, then rebound by the Romans. And Agabus's prophecy comes true. And he listened to the people entire. Or... 
that's where I land. You have to think that Paul is grieving the Spirit and going against what the Spirit told him to do through the people at Tyre, which is not where I land. Though Paul is human, not the incarnate Son of God like Jesus. So Paul obviously was a sinner. I mean, we see that in Galatians, right? Apostles sinned. In fact, we looked at this when I looked at Peter being rebuked by Paul in Galatians. And he actually says of him, you're no longer in accordance with sound doctrine, with, with the truth of the gospel. That's a pretty powerful statement for one apostle to say to another in the book of Galatians, right? When, when Paul rebukes Peter. Look at the language of that text again. It's very strong. So what do we do here? Well, I'm going to suggest this really quickly. I, I believe that the main reason we struggle with discerning God's will is we're not connected to his spirit. He's our counselor and guide, and at times he offers a prophetic word to his people to direct them. It's how he chooses to operate. And I believe one of the reasons we so struggle with God's will is because we just don't know who's even in us after we're saved. God's Spirit's in you. Is that not good news? He's in you if you're saved. He's your witness, or he's the witness in you, your counselor, your guide. He's the one who works with you around sanctification. I mean, I've done a whole sermon on this earlier in Acts. He gifts us. He grants us gifts. In fact, this is why in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Really clearly in Scripture it says, you should especially eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. When was the last time you eagerly desired a prophetic word? You prayed that God would grant you a word of prophecy. When was the last time you just asked the Lord for that? And then it needs to be done in, 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 an, in an orderly, godly way. 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 talk through this, but listen to this from 1 Thessalonians 5. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. You see, right now, if you're sitting here struggling with this, are you, are you treating prophetic word as contempt? As contempt. That, that's what Paul says in Thessalonians. Don't treat prophecies with contempt. Don't, what is contempt? Disregarding something. Thinking it's beneath your consideration. Having a disdain for it. But Paul says really clearly in 1 Thessalonians, right? Don't quench the spirit. And then he explains how you quench the spirit. One of the ways is by treating prophecies with contempt. He says, you're quenching the spirit if you treat the prophetic word with contempt. Test them, he says. You've got to test them all and hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. So how do, you, how do you test them? Well, one of the ways is, again, Scripture. Is it aligned with what God says in Scripture? You discern. You bring other people together. God grants gifts of discernment to his people to discern it. You do it as a community together. Listen, I'm not an expert in this. I'm going to give you three quick stories. Right? I'm young. I'm like 19 I'm in my room waiting for a friend to come visit me at OBC. I'm sorry, I was 20, because um, he was there our second year, and he was coming to visit, and, and I was waiting, and the Lord just asked me to pray for him. And as I was praying for him, the Lord brought another person to mind, a female that he had never met before. So now I'm praying for both of them, and, and the Lord wouldn't let me stop praying. I just continued to pray for them, for two people who never met each other. He showed up at the school, 
She was working the front desk. I didn't know this. They met. He was supposed to come up and hang out with me, and they went off in a car somewhere to have sex. But I was praying. And he said they parked, and they couldn't do it. He'd been struggling his faith, which is why I asked him to come to visit. I had known she'd struggled his faith. An hour and a half later, he comes into my room, and he's all upset. And I said, what's wrong? And I'm, I'm, I'm actually still kneeling, praying. And I get up, and he says, he says, he says, I've just had the worst night. And I said, did you try to have sex with so-and-so? And he just burst into tears and fell to the ground and said, yes. I wouldn't have known that. I couldn't have known that. Except that the Lord revealed that to me. Now, was that a prophetic word? I mean, as he and I talked and I offered, and I just said, I was praying for you. I, I go, I, I fast forward years later. I'm connecting with someone who's walking with the Lord, but really struggling. And the Lord very specifically tells me the sin they're struggling with. I'm like, oh boy. And I'm like, Lord, I, I don't, I don't, like I haven't had this happen very often in my life. And I'm like, I, I just, I just am struggling with this. And I finally feel like I'm sinning if I don't go and talk to them. I'm actually sinning. So I pull them aside one day, have a conversation with them and said, you know, I, I just, as I've been praying for you, this is something the Lord's kind of laid on my heart that this may be something you're struggling with. I'm just trying to understand if that's the case or not. I'm not sure why when I pray for you, this is what comes to mind. And he just, again, he just broke. I'll never forget, he collapsed into my arms and he cried. He said, I have never told anyone. I have never breathed the word of this to anyone. No one else knows. He says, how do you know? And I said, the, the, Lord, the Lord told me, right? But you test it. Right? My testing it was asking them. Right? Like, is this right? Is this true? And my one friend's place, when I was 19, he was like 20, when I was 20, he was like, this is totally what was going on. In the other case, it was entirely the case. And he repented of it. I mean, God has in powerful ways freed him from it. And he's walking so well with the Lord. I, uh, I'm leading a couple of prayer meetings this summer. Andrew's leading a bunch of the worship at him. Jesse's doing some of it. And uh, Tim and, and, and Dave and Paul are going to lead some of the others. And um, recently at one of our elders' prayer times, Andrew came to us and said that Kristen had a dream. Right? It was a dream. Is that right? And just asked us, as they've been praying about, to think about something that the Lord was revealing to her. And did we see an alignment in it? To test it. Is that fair? Right? Is this, is this what we sense God's doing and saying? And I felt such an alignment with what, it was about our kids and I'm not going to get into it all, but, but out of that, I've just decided August 2nd, right? I think that night, we're just going to dedicate the night to pray for our kids and families. I mean, our kids are being raised in such a difficult environment, aren't they? Such a challenging world. And I just think we just need to gather and ask God to break the enemy's stronghold that he longs to have on so many of our kids and just pray. And so on August 2nd, I think you're leading that night, are you? You and I? We'll figure something out. But I've just, as I've been praying about it, I was just like listening to what the Lord was saying. And I just like, like it wasn't just me, Tim, Dave, like we were, we were just Paul. We were all like, yeah, we think this is what God's doing. We think this is what God's saying. And, and so out of this, I just believe that we, we need to then act on it. And, and so if we're going to act on it, let's, let's gather as we're gathering to pray and just pray. Oh, God, we need you. God, would you protect our kids? God, would you guide our kids? God, would you save our kids? God, would you bind the enemy from our kids' lives? God, would, would you be with them as so many of them are listening to the lies and, 
And, it, and it's based out of, I mean, this has been in my heart for a while, but it's based out of Andrew coming to our elders' prayer time and saying very humbly, this is something that God revealed to Christian in a dream, and we've been wrestling through what this might mean. I just want to lay it out here and see if it resonates with anyone. Not to interpret it, right? Just to start with just laying it out to see if it resonates with anyone. And, and we just were like, wow, this is what, this is it. Like, this is, and then he offered a bit of what a possible interpretation was. I was like, I, this, this has been resonating in my heart for a long time. Really quickly, just so you guys can come up. So, what do you do? You start by eagerly desiring the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. You recognize that the prophetic gift is not an infallible one today. This is very different than the prophets of old. And that we test them. That's why we test it. And, and that's why Paul says to test them and not burn the false prophets. Like this is not, we're not condemning false prophets to death today the way they did in the Old Testament. You test them, it says. But you don't hold them with contempt. What, what would your life look like if every so often you had a word that God had given you to someone very specifically and directly. That was something he revealed to you to speak to them, and you did it humbly and kindly. Wouldn't that encourage your faith? Right? Because sometimes, I've given some examples on the negative side, but sometimes it's on the positive side. It's not always on the negative side. Like, sometimes it's, it's, it's about what God wants you to do, where God wants you to go. I mean, I mean, the Holy Spirit said to the churches they were praying, said apart from me, Paul and Barnabas. And I suggested, likely, they didn't hear an audible voice of, from heaven. It was in the context of Scripture where there are a number of prophets mentioned. Likely, it's through one of the prophets that are there that the Holy Spirit spoke and said, said apart from me, Paul and Barnabas. What if today that word was there and we tested it, right? They tested it. And then we test it and say, okay, God's asking us to set aside so-and-so to go and do his work here. God's asking us to do so-and-so to do that. And what if, what if that was the way it happens? And can I suggest this? That I bet you it's happened to you more than you think. We just don't use the language like this. Right? You're gathering with some godly people trying to discern what's next, and someone comes to you and says, you know, as I've been praying for you. And they offer you something very specific that you know is from the Lord that they couldn't have known had God not revealed it to them. And we don't then use the word prophetic language, but I bet you more of us have experienced it than we thought. And maybe, moving forward, one of the things we need to do as a congregation, better than we've done, it's not a maybe, it's a, it's a we should, is learn to rely on God's spirit as the one who directs and leads and guides us. We've tried that over the years. I, I don't think it's something that we've um, been avoiding in any way. But as we've gone through Acts, I hope you've been impressed. What's been impressed on you is how much this church relied on God's spirit. So as we close in song, I just, I just want to say this. I think we need to take a moment and just pray and just say, okay, God, what does this look like for me? How do I, how do I just eagerly desire the gifts of the spirit, especially prophecy? Because when was the last time you just prayed for that? And maybe today you're hesitant. Maybe today you're like, Ooh, I'm not there yet, Dwayne. And so maybe you need to say, okay, God, today my first step is to start to dive into the Word. What does the Word say about this? But if you're there, if you're at the place where you're like, yeah, I need to be praying this. Before we sing, would you just take a moment on your own and just pray? And just ask God. Just ask Him. He longs to give you a gift. Is that not good news?
He longs to walk with you that way. He longs to direct you. His spirit is in you to do so. God doesn't leave us a spirit and then be like, oh, now it's all guesswork. He's granted us even this portion in Acts to help us understand how he will lead and guide us. So just for a couple minutes, you pray and then I'll pray and then we'll sing. God, our prayer is simple today. May you help us to follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. May we not quench the Spirit. May we not treat any prophecy with contempt. But may we test them all, holding on to what is good and rejecting the evil. May it be so in this place we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.